Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Mickey, I am so excited to see you and have you on the Leave Your Mark podcast, finally. I know, it's like a dream come true. I'm such a fan of the podcast and a fan of yours, and just to be sitting together is a thrill, let alone to be talking about these scintillating topics we're going to have. Oh my God, I love you. So for everyone listening, Mickey Boardman is, first of all, a fashion industry icon and veteran. He is the editorial director of Paper Magazine. Mickey, you grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and you joined Paper as an intern after studying fashion at Parsons School of Design. Correct. And you never left. Correct. Well, like for rehab, once I got fired for three months to go to rehab and came back then. Well, that's an important mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. Since 1993, you have written an advice column, Ask Mr. Mickey, for the magazine, notorious for its witty responses to readers' woeful questions. You recently launched another weekly column, which I love, called Fat and All That, Mm -hmm. in which you discuss your lifelong struggle with weight and body issues and society's attitudes towards overweight people, which is a very important topic. We will get to more of that later. But first, you are one of Business of Fashion's 500 people. And for listeners not in the know, the BOF 500 is the definitive professional index of the people shaping the $2.4 trillion fashion industry, hand-selected by the editors of BOF and based on hundreds of nominations received from current members, analysis, and research. And I just want to say that BOF says about you, the paper magazine boss put the title on the map when a provocative Kim Kardashian cover broke the internet. And that was quite literally what happened. And to take people back, if you don't know this story, but I mean, I honestly, if you don't know the story, then please come out from under your rock. It was 2014 and the cover of Paper Magazine went viral. Tell us a little bit about what that cover looked like. Well, I'm flashing back to the dinner we did together that you worked on. So it's your part of that history, too. Um, It was Kim Kardashian shot by Jean-Paul Goud, legendary photographer, recreating one of his classic shots of a woman opening a bottle of champagne with the champagne shooting out of the bottle back behind her and landing in a champagne glass perched delicately on her butt. So because Kim was famous for her fabulous butt, John Paul thought that would be a great thing to do with Kim. And Kim was incredible and so into it and so excited and like the easiest person I've ever worked with. And um, it did, it really did break the internet, I have to say. And the name Break the Internet came from Drew, our editor-in-chief at the time, 
we had planned to have Kim Kardashian on the cover of our anniversary issue, but then Kim, the founder of Paper, was not enthusiastic. Loving Kim, she loves Kim Kardashian, but she thought that Kim K didn't really fit on an anniversary issue because she wasn't part of the history of Paper. You know, and Drew had said, if we have Kim Kardashian on the cover, it will literally break the internet. And so I said, break the internet. Wow, what a fun name. Because that's really what we're all trying to do is break the internet all the time. So why don't we just say that's what we're doing instead of pretending that we're trying to do something else. So, and that's what we did. And there you go. The rest is history. And our new break the internet issue launches on Monday, which has two different covers, both incredible and that we're very excited about. So. I mean, it was really epic. And I think that it was undoubtedly the most talked about cover and also controversial. Absolutely. Of course, because everything she does ends up being a debate. And the party we did together in Art Basel was so much fun. It was like a hurricane, too, basically. Do you remember? It was like a monsoon. And Kim K was so great because she was very sick. And you saw later on Keeping Up with the Kardashians, she was having issues related to when she had given birth and some very serious health issues. But she was a total trooper and came anyway to the dinner and, you know, said, is there anyone you need to have photos with? What do you need? And was a total pro. So great. A Libra like myself. Yes. So yes, um, yes. I attribute that as the reason for why she's so great, among other reasons. But Yes. And mm-hmm. as Gemini, I appreciate <laughs> Part Half of you appreciates that. <laughs> All of me appreciates it. But, but I will say that, honestly, everyone who was there was a trooper because it was the worst night yes. I think you could ever throw a party. In a parking garage, that famous Herzog de Miran parking garage on Lincoln Road that has no walls. So it was, we were in a monsoon in a building with no walls. And conveniently, the rain was just pouring sideways. Yes. Remember, it was like you could see it coming through. And I will just remind you that I was wearing a long fringe skirt. And what happens when fringe gets wet? It grows. Wow. And I was wearing these um, Dior, like little wedges that have these tiny bows and the fringe got caught on the bows and I kept on tripping because I, I was attached to myself. <laughs> it was really bad, actually. It was but, a magic night, but yes. But, but we digress. Yes. So for everyone listening, I don't say this lightly. Mickey Boardman is considered an institution on the New York social and fashion scene. It's not an exaggeration. New York Magazine recognizes you as one of the most photographed faces in New York. And you were really just a great connector and an amazing person. And I'm proud to call you a friend. Thank you. I'm proud for you to call me a friend and vice versa. Isn't it amazing to come to like to, I remember the first time in my life when I was an exchange student in Madrid, my junior year in college. And I had, you know, we've all had struggles. I had struggles as a child, but I always had nice friends and whatever. But it was the first time when I was in Madrid that I saw people and thought, wow, those people are so amazing. I wish I could be friends with someone like that. And became friends with them, people who had really shared interests. Because in Hanover Park, Illinois, my interests were not the common interests. And I feel that way about New York, about you and Bevy and Marjorie and all of our friends. I just feel like it's such a dream come true to be able to be friends and colleagues and collaborators with people like you guys. And and that's out there for everybody, you know what I mean? And I never would have found that. I mean, you're from New York, right? Yeah. So, like, I mean, you didn't have to leave home to do that. Although you went to Michigan for college, which I think no, is... No, David did. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. That sort of sticks onto okay. me. <laughs> Sorry. Unfortunately, because that's his school. Uh-huh. But no, I went to Maryland, but well, I get it. But you left New York, which I think is great because, you know, and some people never leave where they're from and like there could be paradise for you out there. And I think it's important to kind of go explore. Not that you ask me that, but anyway. No, no, no. Mm. I think it's very relevant. What were you like growing up? 
I was sort of a precocious kid. You know, I would read the encyclopedia sort of for fun. You know, I loved <laughs> knowledge. I did. I mean, it was not like the super dry intellectual encyclopedia. It was probably an encyclopedia for kids. But like, I loved reading about ancient Egypt or Greece. And yeah, I just, I was sort of like a nerd that way. But also, of course, like very gay. Like I loved musicals and sort of I was Cinderella for Halloween when I was five, which I can't believe my mother agreed to. But anyway, there you go. Although the problem with that was I, of course, envisioned sort of the tulle gown and like a tiara, like the very glamorous. Exactly. And what I got was like, you know, a packaged, boxed Cinderella costume from Walgreens, like for $2.99. That was basically like a plastic garbage bag with like a sort of Cinderella dress on it. And, you know, not at all the glamour that I had, had fantasized about, but well, I think you've made up for lost time. Absolutely. Absolutely. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I had no idea. You know, I never really thought about, I, I mean, I did think about it. I never had any idea what I wanted to be. I just had a lifestyle in mind. It's embarrassing to say now because it's not the lifestyle I actually really wanted or that I have, but I kind of envisioned to me as a kid, Ralph Lauren ads were the pinnacle. Wow. So I wanted to be, I visualized myself in sort of a foreign convertible driving in the countryside, either I don't know where and. I imagine the Hamptons or upstate New York or Europe, something like that, with just sort of glamorous people and, you know, sort of very interesting people. And whenever there was like an episode of something like The Brady Bunch, which I'm, you know, was too young to really see in the original, but I mean, like I would see reruns of The Brady Bunch and Jan had this great aunt who she found out looked exactly like her as a child, but then grew up to this crazy eccentric person who traveled everywhere and knew all kinds of amazing people. I was always attracted to those kinds of situations. So I always, I knew I wanted to be surrounded by fabulous international glamour fun, but I never, you know, I remember also saying I wanted to either be a doctor, a lawyer, or the good humor ice cream man, because everyone was excited to see the good humor ice cream. man. And we would run after that truck, you know, to get ice cream. And I said, doctor or lawyer, just because I knew those were like rich, respectable things to do, but I had zero, like I have no potential skill for those things. You know, I still, in a way, it was an accident that I became an editor because no one I knew when I was growing up worked in any kind of creative field. Everyone's parents either worked in an office or my dad was a pharmacist or so I didn't think you could do those things. You know, looking back, if I had known, I probably would have tried to become a writer on a soap opera because I'm so addicted to soap operas and I love them so much. But even though I would see the credits, it's written by someone. I never thought like, wow, I could do a job like that. Or, oh, you could work at a magazine or, oh, you could be involved in fashion. I just oh, never I knew. totally agree. I would pass by those mastheads all the time and never once think like, those are people who work there. Yeah. And that's a job. But wait, so what made you major in Spanish? Is that because yeah. you wanted to go abroad and, and Well, kind of when I first went to college, my major was psychology because I sort of thought I'm such a freak. I probably would be a good <laughs> psychologist. Let me understand myself. <laughs> or not even. I thought like I can relate to people with problems because I've had so many problems. But then I found out about this junior year abroad program. And that was, I went to Purdue, which is in West Lafayette, Indiana. And my brother went there. My dad went there. And a big selling point from my dad's perspective was that they had exchange programs. And ironically, my mother didn't want to let me go to on this exchange program. She hates travel. She's never been to Europe. And my dad, on the other hand, loves travel and always wanted to do it, but never did because my mother hated it until he and I started taking trips together. But so when I went to Spain, it's like every single thing counted towards the major. 
towards Spanish. So I thought I might as well be a Spanish major. I mean, again, never thinking that what I was doing should relate to some kind of job or anything. And I had taken Spanish starting in seventh grade and I wanted to take French, but my mother insisted I take Spanish because she thought it was more practical. And I suspect she thought it was less gay to take Spanish than French personally. Who knows if that's true? Anyway, so yeah, so I finished my junior year there and it was a life-changing experience. Came back and graduated a semester early because all those classes I had taken there. And then what made you want to go to Parsons? I decided that because, weirdly, because of my addiction to magazines, you know, I remember being 10 years old looking at Isabella Rossellini on the cover of Vogue in the Grace Mirabella days at the supermarket in Hanover Park and thinking like, what's a good excuse for a 10-year-old boy to buy Vogue with Isabella Rossellini on the cover? And every month it was either Isabella Rossellini or Sherry Belafonte Harper. I mean, and they were always in like a chunky turtleneck and it was like a headshot and it's just like, it was not different ever. And I always thought that was so strange. But um, anyway, I can't remember what the reason I thought of was, but I got it. So that was exciting. But so looking in magazines and loving clothes, I thought, oh, I should be a fashion designer. Having no idea like what that meant, no idea how to sew, having never taken an art class or anything. So after I graduated, I applied to Parsons first for continuing education just to do like like an associate's degree thing. So I did that for a year and I loved it. And I loved it in the sense because it was fun to learn things. And I have to say everybody else was so much, I don't want to say more talented, but you know, they'd all gone to art high school and they all were like really good artists. And I was like, a nuff, I was like a freak off the street. And in a weird way, I found that that's so liberating because once you surrender to the fear of being embarrassed or not fitting in, you really can just have a good time and learn. And in a way, nobody expects anything of you because you're a total freak. And then you can, you know, sort of surprise people. Why did you consider yourself a total freak? What was so different about you? Well, a freak in the sense of I didn't know how to draw. I didn't know anything about fashion. It's sort of like being dropped in Isn't the middle that of something. Point of uh, yeah. Yes, but I mean, I sort of at the time I thought all these other people are so prepared for it. I don't know. I think, you know, I always have had in a weird way imposter syndrome where I just sort of like, oh, it's like a mistake that I got here. Like, I remember when I flew Air France first class for the first time, someone else paid for it, not me. It was so glamorous and amazing. I was seated next to Catherine Deneuve in front of Sofia Coppola. There were only four of us in the whole section. Every time the flight attendant came over to like, see if I needed a drink or anything. I thought she was going to say, there's been a terrible mistake. Your actual seat is 42J in the, <laughs> in the last row that doesn't recline next to the toilet in the middle seat. But she didn't. But you know, and I think that's the way I sort of felt at Parsons. Like I thought, and you know, the thing is, and I look back when I applied after sort of the first semester, I was like, this is great, but I need more. I have so much more to learn. So I applied to the BFA program. And again, in the moment of thinking, like if I had thought, wow, this could never happen, I probably wouldn't have even applied. Because again, like even to do, I don't know if I have, but I hopefully have still the thing that I, the application thing, because you had to design five outfits. And I did this whole editorial story of women who inspired me, like Edie Sedgwick and Mary Tyler Moore and Diana Vreeland. And it was all like, there was copy and shit. I mean, which it's like, they didn't say do copy. They just said do sketches. And strangely, I, of course I got in, even though I think like one out of 10 people got in at the time at Parsons and two or three of the five pieces were in like the best in application show. They did like a show of like, uh, and I was like, that was such a weird fluke. You need to find that. I, I know I need that. to dig that up. It, they were pretty fabulous, I have to say. But again, it was one of those things where you just never know. There were always people along the way who thought I was fabulous or deserving of recognition or deserving of support, which I never expected. There were also the opposite. There were also people who were like, this must be neutralized <laughs> and removed. What did you do with those people? 
luckily I'm being a Libra. I hate discord or, you know, conflict of any kind. So I didn't really fight it. I sort of just thought, okay, that's who they are. And that's, uh, you know, what it is. And Parsons was a little horrible at the time. I have to say in that a lot of the teachers had been sort of the stars of their year who then sort of didn't make it. This is my assessment who came back to be teachers and were sort of bitter and the attitude, like the first day of sophomore year, which was when I started, you know, they would say, oh, we have 100 people in this year and that's too many people. So we at least like 30 percent of you have to be failed. You know, so it was sort of it wasn't like, we're, you know what I mean? Not that it should be, hey, we're all here to have a good time, but it shouldn't be that tone. Wait, that's that's not normal. No, it's not. And it's not like that anymore. But at the time, it was very rough. And so like people cried all the time. I never cried, but it was. It sort of made me tough in a weird way. And I really felt for some of the other kids who were super talented, who would get tortured in ways that I felt like were completely unnecessary. Also, it was one of those things where they relished making you stay up all night to do bullshit homework. Do you know what I mean? Well, I honestly think that's great training for the fashion industry. Yeah, it's true. How'd you land the paper internship? You know... I don't know if we had to do internships, but they encouraged us to do internships at Parsons. And they kind of, I went to the place. I don't know if there was an office. I mean, there was some kind of- guidance counselor. Exactly. And they had like some posted on the wall because it was before the internet, like a bulletin board. The only one that sort of struck my interest was to work at Francesco Scabulo, the photographer. Mm -hmm. And I went to his studio and got interviewed. Yeah. I mean, such a, who shot a few legendary things for paper meanwhile over the years. And I went and they were like, so you're a photography major? And I said, no. And they were like outraged that I'd even come. They were like so <laughs> confused. But I just like heard Francesco Scavulo and was like, oh, that's, I want to be there. So anyway, so I didn't get that internship. And then I was like, hmm, what am I going to do? And after I graduated from college the first time, I went back to Spain and taught English and then actually ended up spending the summer in Germany studying German, blah, 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 blah. And um, while I was in Spain the second time, I made friends with this woman, Alex Kuczynski, whose father was the president of Peru recently, although he's resigned. It's a long story. And she's a beauty writer and an amazing person. And she was from Washington, D.C., but lived in New York City going to Barnard. And her best friend from high school growing up went to Barnard also and then became the managing editor of paper. So I met her socially. And I've always loved magazines. I've always been addicted to magazines. My house is filled with old magazines. I purge sometimes, but it kills me to purge. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't have a storage unit, but I could have a storage unit just for like old magazines. So I loved paper and I was such a lunatic fan. And I remember the first issue I ever saw was, I don't know, I don't think it was probably 1990 or 91 or something like that. And it was um, Patricia Hearst, who was my favorite celebrity of the 20th century. I mean, incredible and amazing. And she's so fun. I follow her on Instagram and we come and message each other and stuff. And she trains dogs or like, you know, she takes her dogs to dog shows and wins ribbons and travels. She's an amazing, fascinating person. Anyway, so I started buying it and I would like go to the newsstand. I would get the new issue and like two days later, go to the newsstand and be like, when's the new paper coming? And they'd say like, you were just here two days ago. Give us a month, you know, come on. And so then the double issues of summer and winter would like kill me because you had to wait an extra month. And (laughs) I just felt like I just loved the things they covered. And I felt like they were so on the mark of the cool new things to do in everything and food and music and fashion, all that kind of stuff. So I met Wendy Gabriel, who was the managing editor. And I just said, Oh my God, you're so lucky. Like, I mean, paper is my favorite magazine. And she just said, she reminds me of you actually. She sort of, she had red hair, gorgeous, really smart and said, um, well, why don't you just come be an intern? And I was like, Oh my God, I like, you can be like, again, and, then duh. and so I went in, I was so nervous and freaking out of what to wear. And the woman who, 
was in charge of internships at the time and whose job I eventually took when she quit, I didn't, it wasn't like an all about Eve, was so hardcore. I mean, she fired questions at me. She's like, what's the coolest club in New York? What was the last band you saw? Blah, blah, you know, and I was like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> again, thinking that there's no way I'll get hired. And I did get hired. And the situation there was the exact opposite of Parsons. Like at Parsons, like the kids loved me and whatever. I was socially, it was kind of great. But most of the teachers thought I was like the worst. Like they didn't care for me at all because I would do things like, I remember I did this, my favorite collection, which I posted on Instagram not too long ago, was I called Jackie Ho, which was Jacqueline Onassis hip hop collection inspired by Criss Cross, that band that wore their yes. jeans backwards. So yes. I did like an evening gown that looked like a t-shirt with like backwards jeans. And I just thought it was so funny and fun. They didn't think so. They didn't. At Parsons, they thought Michael Kors was as avant-garde as you should get. Like they didn't want anything funny. They didn't want anything weird. It was the exact opposite of what you think of as like St. Martin's in London being where they say, be a freak, be a freak. You know well, what I mean? Well, they probably wanted just commercial viable yeah. business. Yeah. Right? And I, even I have to confess, a couple times I would be like, just to show them how smart I was, I would do exactly what I thought would make them excited. And it, I did. Like my trick was always put the vest outside the jacket. And they thought, oh my God, it's genius. But it was still like a normal vest and normal jacket, but just it was the styling was a little freaky. So they loved that. So anyway, so they would sort of be like, oh my God, what's... And plus I was a drug addict at the time, dressed like a crazy person. And that was not really for them so much. At paper, meanwhile, they loved how I dressed. They loved my enthusiasm and were excited to have me there. And to me, nothing is more satisfying and more critical for a person than to feel welcomed and at home where they are. Because, oh, yeah. you know, if... I always say if paper had been a plumbing supply store, I'd be a plumber today. I just, you know, I felt like I belonged and that made me want to work harder and made me care a lot about what I did, whereas I got the opposite feeling in Parsons. And again, I'm not blaming the people at Parsons. They thought what they thought for a reason. And I was a handful and, and all that. And, you know, I'm happy. I, I ended up flunking class my senior year, so I never finished. But by that point, I had been an intern. I started a paper like in the spring of 92 as an intern. And in January of 93, you know, right after near, that's when they hired me. And I had failed one of my two, you only had two classes. I failed one of them. And I was always teetering, like hanging by a thread anyway, I have to confess. Although there were moments of grandeur in between, but I was usually kind of hanging now, by a thread. Now, did you fail because of your drug problem? Like, do you feel like that? Partly. I would always finish all the work, but partly I was a crystal meth addict. So I would sort of be up for days. And um, that is some hardcore drugs. It is super hardcore. And I always looked down on the cokeheads, I'm embarrassed to say, because I always thought if like, if you really mean business, you'll be a crystal meth addict. How long were you? I would say I was on crystal meth, I would say for like three years, maybe four years. And I've been sober now for 22 years, which is fabulous. And I'm yes. very excited Yay. about it. Thank you. You know, so and certainly that was a complication. And a funny thing was, I was supposed to fail this one class. You had illustration and studio. Studio what do you was mean like you were supposed to fail. Well, you have two classes. One's illustration, and one is which they don't even teach illustration at Parsons anymore, which is a separate topic, which it's I find shocking sad, and crazy. Actually. I completely, I completely agree. And then you had studio, which was like three days a week for the whole day, where you do sewing and pattern making and draping. And the illustration class stuff was always laid, and I would do these freaky things that they were not into, and you know, so. The teacher, Mr. Anstelli, said he was going to fail me because of. So I knew that kind of a month before the end of the year. And then we had to do this in class final, which was like 50% of our grade or some ridiculous thing. 
And people like left during it, like to throw up. They were so nervous. Everyone was like losing their mind. It was that kind of stressful situation. Oh my gosh. And at this point, I said to the director of the program, Mr. Rizzo, who I was not a fan of, who's since deceased, and I wish, you know, RIP. And there were many people who he supported and who loved him. And so I'm not trying to diminish their feelings, but I was not part of that fan club. And um, I said to him, you know, I already know I'm going to fail this class. Can I not take the in-class final? Like, why do I have to take it? And he, you know, insisted I take it. So anyway, so I did it. And what you had to do was sort of a week's assignment in that half day. Like we had like from nine to noon or something. We had to design a collection. We had to do like 30 or 40 croquis, you know, little sketches, and then do like five finished drawings with swatches and all this kind of bullshit. So anyway, at this point, I don't think I was on drugs that week. And also there was no pressure. I was like, I failed anyway. So I might as well just do what I like and what I think is fun. So I did it and I, you know, I, whatever I had, like, I always did like shorty overalls. I did like asymmetrical overalls. I, I just, whatever I did fun, cute things, but always the same kind of, you know what I mean? And afterwards, Mr. Rancitelli like said he wanted to have a meeting with me. And I was like, what more? It's, it's not enough. You're failing with me. Now you got yeah, like to have me come in for a meeting. Yeah, like he just wants to crush your soul. Yeah. So I went in and he said, I have been teaching for 17 years and I've never seen anything like you. I don't understand. You're like a mess, but then this assignment you did is incredible. Like you've done such amazing work and you just sat and did it in three hours. I don't understand. Like, and I've, I've never done this before, but I'm not failing you. <laughs> this is just a happy moment before the ugly end. I'm not failing you. I've never done this. I'll give you an incomplete and I'll give you a thing to do over Christmas, which you'll do. And then we'll give you a grade. I, this is like on the 23rd of December, right up to Christmas. And again, you know, cold and like Christmas music everywhere, but like misery and failing school, all this <laughs> kind of stuff. So I went in the next day and Lisa Smiler from CFJ yeah. was the assistant to the late Mr. Rizzo. Oh, and, wow. and always sweet and always supportive and delightful to me. So I went in to get the take-home assignment. And I swear, if it was not Christmas Eve, it was the 23rd. And like the school was already deserted. The only people in the school were Lisa and myself. So I went in to pick up this take-home assignment. And she said, it turned out I failed my studio class, which I had no idea that was a total curveball. Mr. Pescatore failed me. And that's where you had to like make a, a jacket by hand. And again, I was not the star student, but I did everything I was supposed to do. So I was a little shocked about that. But so anyway, so that I had such horrible shame issues about being like kicked out of school. And in a way, I wanted to leave school. And I had said to my mother, who I had bamboozled into paying for this school after I'd already gone to an out-of-state school sure. once, you know, and she just said, just finish, you know, whatever. Why you've come this far, you just have a little bit more just to finish it. And I do believe that all school is personal growth and development. Like it's not really necessarily unless of course you're a doctor or a lawyer you know then you have to have a very specific school it's like it doesn't matter what you study because you can still be whatever you want to be or do whatever you want to but thank god i had graduated from purdue because i really had issues like oh my god i'm like a flunk you know i felt like i had a big l on my forehead like loser you know flunky but paper loved you but paper loved me and ironically the woman who had hired me to be an intern who was kim and david the co-founder's assistant the photo editor, the party photographer, the club writer, the office manager, like she did everything. It was a Tasmanian devil. Maggie McCormick was her name, also redhead. A lot of important redheads in my life. Yeah, she was amazing. She had been there for seven years from the time it was in Kim's apartment. And she woke up on New Year's Day and, you know, kind of didn't know where she was. And, you know, after a long while tonight, and was like, I can't do this anymore and quit. And there is your opportunity. And they said to me, like, oh, you know, Maggie just quit. 
do you think, like, can you maybe just answer the phones until we figure out what to do? And I, at that point, was the star intern because also I had been, you know, it was by semester. So I had done like the spring and kind of was the star, did the summer and then again, so hit you, were, the fall. you so were part of the family. I was a total part of the family by then. So, but again, and they even said, like, it wasn't like you're hired, you have a place for life. It was like, can you, until we figure it out. And it was like, that was 27 years ago and they so, still haven't figured so it out. So let's talk about that. Like yeah. at a time where I think there is no loyalty. Yeah. The kids today. Kids to what's the matter with kids today? They leave after, you know, they don't like their boss after three months, they're gone. Yeah. So what is your opinion on staying somewhere as long as you have? Like, do you ever regret i mean i'm sure you got a million offers throughout the course of your career do you mm. ever regret really like plunking down here for your entire career i mean not that you should because it's been no. an incredible career mm. but do you ever wonder like well what else would have happened yes and no i mean mostly no the thing is i've lived in the same apartment for 25 years i've I'm very loyal and I like to find a place that I like and stay there. Your creature and, um, I Absolutely. And the thought to me, and I have friends who are the opposite. I have friends who are starters. They like to go launch something. And then the minute yeah, it's launched, they're true. bored and they leave. And that to me sounds upsetting, you know, to like keep starting newer. Like, you know, I lived in the same house from when I was three till I went to college and was traumatized when my parents moved when I was in college. I got over it, but um, so yeah, it's kind of my nature. And again, the thing is offers like to work at another magazine mean nothing to me, but like if someone like if an Indian prince came along and wanted to marry me and take me away, I would say, yeah, but I still would want to be affiliated with paper or still, you know, do kind of my things. Yeah. You are synonymous with paper Mm -hmm. and you are responsible for what it is today. Mm -hmm. Obviously, with you know incredibly talented colleagues, but still, yeah. I mean, I I think it's where you should be. How do you stay ahead of the trends, or actually, how do you make the trends? Because paper really does set the trend. How do you find mm-hmm. your source of sort of creativity and innovation? How do you do that? Well, to flash back before that, just to sort of say the thing we were saying about kids today, the things that you described about staying in a place for a long time, and I know because you were, I think, 17 years at DKNY, Donna Karen, you know, there are things that come after a long time that you can't get by flitting around. There are things and, you know, people are always shocked when I'm walking down the street with like a young colleague and I know so many people I see on the street or I at a fashion show, like, you know, and the thing is. I know everybody because I've been here for 27 years, not because I'm so special or so unique necessarily, but it's like after you sit next to the same person for a long time or go to the same meeting or the same appointment with them for that many years, you get to know each other. And not that you become best friends, but at a certain point, you get to know each other. And that to me is a satisfaction that nothing can compare to of moving to a new place and getting more money or getting a bigger car or getting whatever. So when you stick it out, that's when all the really the best stuff happens. But well, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right because that is how you build the incredible network. Totally. Yeah, I mean, when I was sort of thinking about this interview, I was like, wow, I would love to like scroll through Mickey's contacts and his iPhone. It must be like an incredible place to look. Oh, you would be outraged because it's such a mess. No, mine, <laughs> mine is It'll be like Elisa's cell phone or it'll have your list and it'll have your DKNY email or you know what I mean? And it's like. But um, if well, it could, in, exactly in my mind, and even we changed to Outlook from Apple Mail when we um, mm-hmm. I did were bought, yeah, and it's that threw me for a loop. But anyway, in terms of the trends, yeah. I have to say I've always hated trends. For a long time, I had a complex about it, like I'm in the wrong business because I hate trends. Meaning that I love sparkle, I love you know 
wild silhouettes. I love glamour. I love classic things. No matter what. Oh, no matter what. Yes. And same. Uh, same. You know what I mean? And fabulous is fabulous. And I love Rick Owens, even though I'm not a vampire, I'm a clown, but I can look at it and see that's his fully realized vision of what he thinks is fabulous. And that I appreciate. I, fabulous in any package, I appreciate. But I remember being on some panel or something somewhere with Julie Gilhart, who at the time was fashion director of Barney's and who's an incredible legendary hey, person. RIP, yes. And someone asked us, as invariably they do, like, what are the trends to watch? And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> people always want me to tell them something and I just I only see sequins I only see what I like like Lynn Yeager is the same way she only like if there's a collection that she would wear she loves it otherwise she's not interested you know what I respect that and I think if I was an editor I would say <laughs> and so Julie leaned into the microphone and said I loathe trends and I thought hallelujah I'm in the right place and I mean I, I can sort of see what's happening on some levels like I'll say oh, the 80s is back this season, or like it's all about Marie Antoinette. I like that, I can see, but I'm less interested in, although it's important to see those things as an editor. But for me, the most important thing is to know what you know, to know what you don't know. And that's a hard thing. Like Everybody thinks they know everything and has to have an opinion on everything and has to act like an authority on everything. And you have to know who does know. And I work with, we have the most incredible team of kids here. I think the best team we've ever had. The women who do the social media are brilliant. Everyone who in the web department, we have a kid here who is Brendan, who's still in college, who is like the TikTok expert of the universe. That's very important right now. And I know newt. I know nothing about TikTok. I mean, I know what it is, but I'm not on it. I, you know. I would actually like to see you on TikTok. I've been thinking about that. You could, you know, if you need any tips from somebody else, you know, Sabrina. Sabrina. Very scary. Absolutely, yes. yes. And see, that's, again, you're lucky to have kids because they yes. keep you in touch with these things. So in a way, people think, oh, you're a parent. You must be so unhip, but you learn these things from uh-huh. your kids. And that's so important. So I think it's just having people around you who you trust and know. And there, listen, I have my, if it's about India, if it's about royals, if it's about body positivity, soap if it's operas. about soap opera. I mean, I am your man. Nobody yeah. is a bigger expert than me, although I bow down to fellow experts, but you know, I'm your man. So you have to know who to trust, like if, you know, what people think about Taylor Swift versus Selena Gomez versus whatever, you know what I mean? So, and paper's always been great about welcoming in young people who are talented and have a vision. And that's the secret, I think. I think that's incredible. So switching gears a little bit, in an industry, as much as we love it, that historically has valued only size two. If even, that's like a If even, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, that is Mm -hmm. that. Um, How has sort of coming up in this industry, given, you know, your history with weight struggles and being also like the arbitrator of style and beauty and glamour, like... It's almost like two separate worlds or living almost like as a stranger inside yeah. this world. Like, how do you think that that has affected you? And how have you also tried to change what is beautiful? Yeah. What is considered beautiful? Because I think that's so important. Yeah. This business, this business is so hateful on so many levels. The thing, I love fashion. I am a fashion person till I die and I will fight for fashion and defend fashion. Oh, but no, wait. You will it, have sequins yeah. on your tombstone yeah. for sure. But it is really horrible on so many, and it's not inclusive. It's doesn't make people feel good about themselves. I mean, on, clothes can do those things. Clothes can make people feel great about themselves and feel beautiful. But, you know, every single thing from the size of the seat at the fashion show to the size of the clothes in the stores to the representation in magazines 
tells anyone who's not a sample size or a model that you're worthless, basically. Let's just pause right there because for people who don't know, so the size of a seat at a fashion show, we're talking about a bench where PR people, me being one of them, would measure out how many butts can fit on a bench. And the standard for a butt was 16 inches, Mm -hmm. which is nothing. And imagine with coats on. Absolutely. And I get it. You want to fit as many people as you can, especially in the front row. And there are many other complicated things, but it just makes it really hard and makes you hope the person next to you doesn't come. And it just (laughs) makes it a a real challenge. But, um, you know, compared to the end of the world, it's not such a crisis, but everywhere you turn, if you're a person who's larger than a 16 inch butt, you feel judged and not valid. The funny thing is not, it's actually not funny. The sad thing is I myself you know, we're all indoctrinated into fat phobia. And I was just as bad as everyone because we have a long tradition of shooting everyone from SNL. And I remember we were going to shoot Amy Bryant, who is hilarious. And I'm a gigantic fan of. And I remember when we were talking about doing her, I said, like, listen, I love her. She's completely amazing, but it's impossible to get clothes for someone who's not a sample size. It's impossible. And now we can do store pulls. We now, luckily, we've committed to, and other people have committed to just making it work. But in those days, too, it was like, okay, you would get a trench coat. It's like, shoot the fat girl in a trench coat. Yes. And it was it was almost, to me, worse than, you know, not shooting somebody. Sure. So, you know, I should have just said, look, we have, we'll make it work. We'll rent clothes. We'll do vintage clothes. We'll shoot her in our own clothes. But, you know, everything is set up that you can't shoot someone in their own clothes. It has to be a credit. You can't shoot someone in vintage. It has to be something that's in stores now. And finally, it's just like, fuck it. The thing is, like, I go to CurvyCon, which is a yearly thing for its sort of like the RuPaul's Drag Con or Beauty Con for plus-size women. And I've never seen such great style. I mean, and the thing is, these women are creative. You know, when I compare these women who put an amazing look together with very little help and support from the retail community versus an influencer who is wearing a head-to-toe look 27. Incredibly boring. It's such a yawn. And I'm, you know, and again, I love fashion, but I'm tired of seeing the same five girls in all the runway, you know, There's not even any sort of personalization to it. And that's, to me, not style. That's just sort of like a commercial. So I think we've made tons of progress, but I think we still have a long way to go. I'm obsessed with Eleven on Array, the website that works with designers. I just was at a lunch. They launched DVF for Eleven on Array, which goes up to size 24. Because also, I mean... You know, most designers, I don't even think they go barely go up to size 10. Maybe you can get a size 10. And they also size down. Yeah. And the average woman in America is a size 16. You know, 60%, over 60% of women are like above a size 14. Anywhere. And the thing that's what's so crazy about that is it's like people were being treated like the smallest, most undeserving minority when we are the majority. We are yes. like the real, you know, the real people. So, and I, whatever, it is how it is because it's always been that way. And fashion is horrible about changing with the times or adapting with the times. And that's why I think department stores close. That's why brands are having trouble because they are not really adapting with the times. And I'm thrilled to see that certain places like Old Navy and Macy's and Target, places like that, QVC, QVC, everything is up to size 3X, which is a 22 or 24. And you know, real women can shop at those places, you know, I mean, but it's like, hello, Barney's like, where are the, you know, Nordstrom actually has 200 brands that do um, larger sizes and size inclusivity. So I think we're making progress, but it's, you know, we still sort of have a long way to go. And it's ridiculous 
in a way, like, why am I in this business in a business that at every turn is telling me I'm bad. And the way I sort of survived and thrived without even knowing is, as I said, when I went to Parsons and I felt like, you know what, it's a fluke that I'm even here. Like I'm in fashion. I just accepted, look, this is not for me. All this is fabulous and great. And I can dress up stars or I could dress up models for shoots and all. But at the same time, I assumed I would never wear those clothes unless it was like the largest size cardigan that I couldn't button because that's all that I could fit in until I have to also say, Ikram Goldman from Chicago, who has the store Ikram and is one of my closest friends. I remember I was at her store kind of just looking through the clothes, loving it all. And she said, let's pick something out. I would like, because it was Christmas and she wanted to give me a present. And she said, isn't there anything that you like? And I was like, I can't fit in anything in the store. And I love wearing women's clothes, not for gender things, but just because they're sparkly and fun. And I said, well, like, I'm obsessed with this Proenza Schooler sequin top, but like the biggest size it comes in is like a 10. And I mean, and she's like, that would never fit me. And she's like, oh, really? And we went in the fitting room and they added panels and like they can make anything fit anybody, which, which is incredible. And that was a huge learning experience for me too, because the ridiculous thing I love a teenager, don't get me wrong. And I used to always be like, 13-year-old models are fine. I've changed my mind. I think they should be 18. Not just because of the fact that they're too young. Because I'm not against like a kid having a wild experience or doing sports or being an actor, like whatever. It's like if they have good parents who keep their heads on straight, I think that's all great. But, um, you know, the women who buy Oscar de la Renta are not 14-year-old Ukrainians. They're like exactly the opposite. There are some, you know, social x-rays, I'm using quotation marks, you know, the skinniest, skinniest socialites like Nan Kempner was or like Mercedes Bass. But, you know, normal, they're really women who are bigger sizes. And I think that they should be shown on women who are, look sort of like what the women who are the customers are, I think. I don't know I, about I you. I could but, not agree more. So it's just, you know, because these models, they have no boobs. They have no, you know, they have no hips and they're gorgeous in a way, but there needs to be the size diversity, of course. Yeah. I mean, I actually think it's not very attractive, to be honest. I mean, I understand, you know, fashion brands will be like, well, you know, the changing sample size, the manufacturing, like we can't produce it. It's, there's so many excuses as to like why it can't happen, but really with money, anything can happen. Yeah. And think about like, I used to love on Twitter when you would do sort of award season and it would be like, this star needs this dress and needs it like in four hours, you know, you got her the dress. Yeah. You can do anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if you really want to do it and if it's your priority, like it's just, it's not only insulting, it's stupid. If you don't want to dress this, you know, 60% of America you're not interested in and you're, you wonder why brands go out of business. I mean, and it's just sort of complacency and sort of fear of being the first ones. I mean, and the thing is people who do things because they believe in them, like Gucci, for example, I feel like they do whatever they want. And they're number one. Like They act like they're number one. They do whatever they want. They don't care what everybody else does. And it's brands like that that thrive and adapt to the future as opposed to ones who won't do anything. And I have to call out like Christian uh, Siriano, for example, is incredible. Yes, he is. He's always been inclusive and always loved dressing women of all different sizes. And he, again, because fashion is so... Can, and again, I love fashion. I am a fashion person. Fashion has treated him badly and that they used to consider him a reality star. Like, oh, you can't be couture because you're on, you're on a reality show. But he does incredible clothes and makes women look incredible. And all, again, doesn't put large women in a trench coat. He puts them in a gorgeous 
nothing is sexier and more flattering than something that fits. You know what I mean? It's not about a tent. It's not about a trench coat. It's about something that like really fits you well and makes you feel fabulous. Well, I think, you know, he's made it a point to cater to everyone. And yeah. I think people are also extremely loyal to him because of that. Absolutely. It's amazing. So is all of this culminating? Is that why you started Fat and That, your column? Yes. You know, the irony is, Drew had said to me, like, when Drew had been my assistant, had been an intern, um, you know, and bought paper, he said, you know, maybe you should write about your weight issues, because it really is not the defining ongoing theme of my life. And I remember once Joan Didion was interviewed and was asked, what is the defining thing about you? And she said, my skinniness, which I thought I completely related to, except that it's my fatness. <laughs> and that's because, wow. you know, having been a drug addict, you think, okay, I'm going to rehab, I'm going to be cured. And you're never cured, but, you know, you are in recovery. And peeling back the addiction issues, there was fatness. You know what I mean? There was this other thing underneath it that I didn't realize. And, of course, being a crystal meth addict, you don't eat for weeks at a time. You don't, you know, you, I would lose weight so quickly. And so much about crystal meth, you know, involves dressing up in crazy clothes, or maybe it's just taps into your personality. For me, it was all about dressing up and going out all night and hooking up with guys, things that sort of like are involved with body image in, in very interesting ways. So, um, but I just sort of never thought that it would be something people would be interesting or that I would even necessarily be comfortable writing about or talking about. And it's what I was really meant to do. I mean, it really is the most satisfying. And there's something and I'm sure everyone agrees, I hope everyone agrees, there's nothing more satisfying than sort of talking about something that you really believe and that you really feel like an expert on. You know what I mean? And it's really, it's my issues. So, I mean, that doesn't mean I'm an expert in biology and physiology, but, you know, I really get it and I'm happy to share my experiences about it. And because I, as an older person, since I'm 53, I've seen that I tortured myself about it for decades for no reason. Like I, I wasted my time. Well, don't we all do that? We all do that. We think, oh my God, my hair is too curly. Everybody hates me. Nobody cares <laughs> your hair is too curly. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, maybe someone will tease you about your hair or your weight or that you're gay, but that's just because kids are assholes. It's not because they really deeply care about that one specific thing. And so we torture ourselves so badly about it. And it's such a waste of time. I just wish nobody would waste time torturing themselves about those things. But I'm afraid, I worry that you can only get to the point of not caring by having cared about it too much for so many years. I hope not. I hope kids learn that. That's, you know, but I worry that kids don't listen to people our age. Like I worry like your kids think, oh, my mom doesn't get it. And it's like your mom has been through every single thing you've been through a hundred times. And listen to your mother's kids, Sabrina, <laughs> Jonathan, <laughs> listen to your mother and everybody else listen to your mother. Because everything your mother tells you is true. I mean, maybe they're crazy. Maybe they have their own issues, but we want to save you the suffering that they've gone through. So, and uh, the, something that helps with me with fat and all that is, I have this weird thing where I'm completely comfortable talking to you here. I'm completely comfortable in front of a group of 500 people. I could tell my deepest, darkest secret in front of a room full of strangers just as easily as I could with a close friend. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of people are the opposite. They can't talk in front of people. They, I'm super comfortable that way. So it's almost like a sickness. Like the minute I'm in front of strangers, I like want to fucking let loose with the craziest thing, you know? And as far as just sort of photographing your progress on Instagram. Yeah. I imagine the first time you took that shirtless picture, you must have been like, 
Oh, oh, absolutely. And the funny thing is, somebody said the other day, I can't even remember where it was. Oh, it was my Weight Watchers leader, Robert, who's amazing. My WW coach, I should say, is what they're called. And he was (laughs) set out, you know, my only full length mirror at my house is from the chest up. You know what I mean? And that's really, although I do have a full length mirror on the back of the closet, I never look in it. I only, I look in the bathroom mirror and I'll think like, and your shoulders always look great. And they look great. Donna Karen, and you, you weight your shoulders. It's not from below. So I don't see the chins. It's the light is great. So I'm, you know, I have this vision in my head that is not real. So, and with the shirtless thing, my trainer had said, you should do it to sort of chart your progress. And, you know, I've spent a life avoiding going to the beach or avoiding being shirtless and, for some reason, it just felt liberating in a, in a funny way. But the first time I hesitated, but people reacted so positively to it. And I don't even mean positively saying, oh, you look great. Or, or you know, they just related. They said, you know, related to the sort of the story. So that made it easier. And I've been lucky. I had a few rude comments, but and I'm a big comment leader, like if someone like writes a rude comment. But um, so, yeah, it's been really sort of positive. And, you know, we all think, oh, this is too big. This is too small. Nobody, ca- again, nobody cares. So that's kind of been, for me, everybody kind of sh- showed themselves. And sort of the new frontier for me has been retouching. I, I don't retouch any of my pictures because I don't know how and I wouldn't anyway. But I always feel like if there's a group now who shoot larger people and it's sort of fat porn where they want to make them look as real as possible, no retouching and like, you know, make them look unattractive. You know what I mean? And I feel like if you're being photographed for a magazine, for anything, you want people to look their best. You want to do makeup. You want to do great lighting. I'm not saying do anything that's, that's not real. That's not real, but maybe, you know, clean up maybe the dark circle or maybe if they have a zip, cover that up. You know what I mean? So who knows? But I know a lot of body positivity people hate all retouching. So I'm trying to find a place on the spectrum that I feel is good. What's the best piece of career advice you've ever gotten and from whom? Oh, it was probably listening to the Leave Your Mark podcast. <laughs> well, just listening to Bevy's, um, I have to say something that really hit me that is great advice was, it's not direct advice, but she was saying how when she was a kid, she never fit in. And I felt that way too. And as an adult, I realized not fitting in is the best thing that could ever happen to you. You know, and all you, when you're a kid, all you want is to blend or to be like other kids. And you think this is the most important time of your life. But, you know, you grow up and you realize the things that you think make you a freak are what make you special and make you a superstar. So you have to embrace those things and cultivate those things. And that's when you really become a star. It's not by trying to be like other people or trying to blend in or by copying something that somebody else did. It's just, it's all about being yourself. And, um, you know, every amazing piece of advice can be traced back to my mother on a certain level too. It's like, be yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You only get one chance to make a first impression, you know, all those things. And I would like to be remembered as someone who was nice and fun to be around. I don't necessarily need to be remembered as someone who broke the internet or had an amazing career or who survived in the dog dog world of fashion. I just want people to think of me and smile. You know what I mean? And say, well, they do. <laughs> Good. So My work is done. Living, living <laughs> icon. You've already achieved your bucket list goals. That's yes. amazing. What is something that you haven't done yet that you would like to do? I'm working on a book, which a lot of it's body positivity, and I think that's great. And I also feel like I have a Hollywood moment in my life. Not, I don't for even know what that sure. is. Sure, thank you. For sure. So, and I love showbiz, and then I also basically otherwise I've kind of done things that I that uh, everything that I've wanted to. I kind of just want to do more and deeper and bigger, like. 
the charity stuff I do, I'd like to make more money for charities. I'd like to spread the word about more about that. And I'd just like to keep working with the amazing people I work with and with new people. You know what I mean? Because there's nothing to me that's more exhilarating and exciting also than to be kind of the least important or the dumbest or the least talented person in the room because it's that old cliche of like when you play tennis with someone who's much better it really raises your game so I love to kind of work with like when we shot Rihanna or people like that it's amazing to work with teams that are just so great and so amazing and so I want to kind of do more of that kind of well you are certainly not the dumbest person in the room or the least talented and I think that you sell yourself short no I know I'm smart and I'm talented but I mean I want everyone to be more talented than well, more smart. I, I do agree that that's a great way to learn. Mm-hmm. And by the way, everyone can learn something new every single day. Like no one is done. I agree. And that crazy thing I find, the things I learn, I would never expect to learn from the people I learn them from. Like, you know, a model who you think, oh, they're only good for their good looks and for photo ops has taught me deep, meaningful things and vice versa. You know what I mean? You can really... You just have to be open to learning and experiencing things. And and you learn more from hideous failures and horrible experiences than you do from success. I mean, and that's why looking back, being a drug addict is one of the best things that ever happened to me because it got me sober. And if I had, if I had just sort of like, I'd still get drunk on the weekends or, you know, party and whatnot, I wouldn't have the life I have today. And the same with getting kicked out of school. If I hadn't flunked out of school, I couldn't have taken the job of paper and I wouldn't be where I am today. So it took a long time to recognize that. So for that reason, I welcome all experiences. I don't, you know, and, you know, something bad happens or something bad's coming. You just have to buckle down and get through it, you know, face it head on. You can't avoid it and run from it. That doesn't help you or teach you anything. So I agree. And it's just sad because so many people can't see coming out the other side. Absolutely. You know, when they're going through it and you are really lucky that you were able to sort of, carry on and get through it and really sort of grow and thrive from that experience because that is really, really difficult. Absolutely. And, you know, it's easy to sort of just say, wow, I'm a failure and just accept that. And it wasn't even like that I thought I'm not a failure. I have to prove things wrong. I kind of just, you know, keep going. It's like you always kind of have to just like keep going. I always say like compared to the end of the world, it's not such a crisis. Like if the house burnt down, that's a crisis. If your kids are sick, that's a crisis. You know, like getting kicked out of school or not getting the cover we want or getting the second row seat. Like those are not crises. They're annoyances, but then, you know, they can be dealt with. And the, the horrible things can be dealt with too. I mean, you have no choice. You have to deal with them. How do you stay so positive? I think it's just something natural in me. I mean, I have had moments of depression in my life, certainly when that are where we're dark, but in general, the world is a fabulous place. I mean, my job is to sit here and talk to someone I love and respect in a sparkle top. I mean, how bad can life be? Do you know what I mean? And although we live in such dark times, politically speaking, yes. you know, there still are amazing people doing amazing things and amazing opportunities. Like just I, a friend is visiting from Korea and we were just walking from a shoot up the street here to the office on 8th Avenue and whatever, through a neighborhood that's not particularly known for its beauty. And he was stopping. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Like he was so excited to be in New York. And I just thought, that's great. You know what I mean? That's exciting. And we live in New York and we travel and we have fun and life is fabulous. And the thing I love, there's enough fabulousness for everybody. It's not just, oh, look, there's only enough for us. Don't tell anybody. Everybody can come to New York. Everybody can live the life of their dreams. They just have to do it. 
I love it. Mickey, thank you so much for doing this with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. You are an incredible person and such great advice. And I think that people will learn a ton. From I hope so. Thank you. And I hope all your followers realize how lucky they are to have you because I see that you have such high engagement with them and they love you and they listen to you. And that's great. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalick. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.